0: Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Man, I, I just love getting to worship with you. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but something inside of my heart just sort of unlocked a little bit more as we were singing, I throw up my hands and I'll praise you again and again. And then um, worthy of it all, uh, what a great. Anthem for us to just declare. So um, it's just good to be together in the house of God today uh, to get to experience the Spirit's work in our lives as we raise His name high. Amen. Amen. If you're joining us online, I hope just a piece of what we got to experience together uh, came through your device. So, um, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to have you with us. If you're new, want to uh, extend a a special welcome to you. It's a special weekend. We are experiencing graduations all around us. And so if you graduated or have a family member who did, um, just wanna say congratulations. I, I don't know, some of you are, are rejoicing that, others are grieving that. We're with you wherever you are in that, that whole mix. So we just say thank you to all the grads and uh, blessings on them. Right on. A while back, I watched the most uh, recent movie about Elvis, creatively entitled Elvis, and um, I don't know about you, but whenever I watch a movie now that's based on a true story, I have my phone out with me, and I'm Googling how much of the story is actually true. Is anybody with me? Yeah, I did that with Air this last weekend and did that with the um, movie about Elvis as well. And there's a, a number of interesting points in Elvis's life. One of the most interesting, in my opinion, is when he was sort of near the pinnacle and maybe starting to come down on the other side of his stardom, he had the chance to meet the Beatles, or rather the Beatles had the chance to meet the King. And Elvis hosted them, and we use that term very loosely hosted up at their home, up at his LA home, because when the Beatles got to his home, allegedly, Elvis greeted them with a sense of calculated, cold casualness, as if to say, You may be on the rise, but I'm still the king. <laughs> and I think something about that interchange, maybe went to the head of John Lennon because shortly thereafter, John Lennon said this. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I will be proved right. We are more popular than Jesus now. Wow is right. I mean, as you can imagine, that didn't make Lennon a lot of friends within the church. But I think it shows human nature at work. We want to be on top. We want to to succeed. We we often bow to the idol of success. And if somebody's a little bit higher up on that ladder than us, it's it's a threat to our little kingdom. And we go into defense mode and we go into hyper high alert mode trying to defend our territory with everything in us. And I would love to say that things within the church operate a lot differently than the interchange between Elvis and the Beatles, but sometimes they don't. My wife and I are watching the most recent documentary um, about Hillsong Church and Pastor Carl Lentz. Um, It just came out a few weeks ago, and it's a combination of fascinating and devastating. One more cautionary tale about the way that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. One more cautionary tale that pride really does come before the And I just wonder how many cautionary tales we need to see before we actually start believing that it's true, that it's true. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to think how, how could they, or why didn't they see that coming, or why didn't they resist that, or haven't they read the Bible? I mean, I, I, There's all sorts of things that rise up in me, and yet there's also, I, I think, something in me that wants to somehow rationalize a way that that doesn't reside within me also. And maybe it resides within you also. And so here's what I want to do today with with the king in mind, with the Beatles in mind, with Carl in mind. I want us to take all of that and I want us to soak our souls together in the subversive, countercultural, humble way that John the Baptist responded to his rising and then diminishing popularity. And I want us to ask Jesus by the power of his spirit to work in us to free us From the chains that often shackle us of successism and to allow us to rest peacefully in his embrace. Amen? Amen. If you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter 3? John chapter 3. Pastor Savon did a phenomenal job last week preaching on the very first portion of this chapter. I love the way that he challenged us to be curious, to, to go to Jesus with our with our questions just like Nicodemus did, to live that out. And now John's going to pivot in his storytelling, in his gospel narrative, and he's going to take us back to a character that we met in chapter one, whose name is John the Baptist. John chapter three, starting in verse 22. Are you there? Wonderful. Here we go. It says this. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, just a quick timeout. I want you to close your eyes and picture a countryside in your mind. All right. How many of you have rolling hills and green grass? Okay, right. You are wrong. Okay. Um, when we're talking about the Judean countryside, we are more adequately talking about desert. That's where Jesus was. Verse 23, John was also baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because the water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. I love this narrative note from John the evangelist, John the author to tell us, listen, John wasn't baptizing while he was in prison. This is before that happened. Thank you, John, because we might've assumed he was baptizing in prison, but he was not. Where was John baptizing? In Anon, near Salim. Where was that? Great question. There's not a lot of consensus on where that was. One of the places, people have identified a place with this name, is in or right near Samaria, which is fascinating. Just tuck that away for next week. Because maybe, just maybe, John is continuing to be a voice in the wilderness that prepares a way for the coming of the Messiah. See, Jesus has now taken over and is baptizing in the first place that John was baptizing in the Judean wilderness. And it's as though John had this sort of baptism shop set up and he handed it over to Jesus when Jesus got there. And now I think he's baptizing up near Samaria. And next week we're gonna see John gets out of the way and once again, hands it over to Jesus where Jesus has a pretty important conversation with a woman at the well. More to come on that next week. Verse 25 says this. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over Purification. Now, you just have to know that in, in um, the first century world, there was a lot of debate of, about theological topics. So this is one of those that was going on. What do we do with mikvahs and ceremonial cleansing and purification and baptism? Verse 23. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. You, you know that guy Jesus you were talking to us about? And you know the guy Jesus who replaced you on the other side of the Jordan and started baptizing people there just like you were doing? And John's like, Yeah. He, he said, Look, he's baptizing, and I just think we should read this together because it's so important. So let's read it together. He's baptizing, and all are going to him. John's disciples are like, Hey, John, quick conversation. Um, When we look at our annual report (laughs) and how many baptisms we're doing, it's not exactly up and to the right. We're we're losing steam. And there's this guy, Jesus, who took over where you were baptizing and everybody's going out to him. What are you gonna do about it, John? Are you gonna respond like, like Elvis? Cold, calculated, you're not going to step on my territory. I mean, John, um, maybe, we, maybe we should rebrand, okay? Maybe we should rebrand and we should relaunch and we should get our logo in front of everybody and it could be water baptism instead of spirit baptism and that can be our corner on the market. Like, John, what do you think? John, what do you think about doing like a social media campaign where we just blow this water baptism out of the water? Pun intended. So, John, how are you going to respond? And isn't human nature to just want to engage that with everything we have? something in us rises up and goes, oh, competition, bring it on, bring it on. But, But see, John knows that Theodore Roosevelt was right when he wrote that comparison is the thief of what? Of joy. You see, if you think about it, there are really only two results if you compare and compete with other people in order to find your worth. The first result is that you come out on top and you become prideful. The other result is that you come out on the bottom and assume that you're a loser But either way, if you base your self-worth on competition with other people and whether you rise or fall, it's either inferiority or superiority and both of them are a loss. Both of them are a loss. So listen to the way that John responds. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That last phrase seems to have been a theme of John the Baptist's life. Like, I think if John the Baptist had a tattoo, that's what it said on it. That that was his life's anthem. He must become more, I must become less. But right before he says that, I think he embeds in this statement a secret to our joy. A countercultural way to the ladder climbing successism that we're often so addicted to and we can't see beyond. Here's what John said. He said, This joy of mine is now complete. It's 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 filled up. It's been taken to its appointed time of culmination. Like John's saying, I couldn't be more joyful if I tried. I'm overflowing. And then he says, he must what? Increase, I must decrease. So John connects his joy to Jesus's increase and his own decrease. Catch this, because this is so hard for us to believe. It runs so countercultural, but here's the secret that John is teaching us increasing joy that we all want because we were wired for it. Increasing joy is actually found through decreasing ego. The complete joy actually comes through decrease, not through increase. Let me me just push into this a little bit more. The gospel radically subverts the presupposition of our upwardly mobile society. It should be jarring and unsettling for our modern psyche? Because culture says bigger is better. Bigger profits, bigger influence, bigger impact. But what if joy is actually found in letting go of all of that and saying, I'm fine growing smaller? I love the way that Dutch theologian Henry Nowen put it when he said, downward mobility is the way of Jesus. It is the path of downward descent that leads to true upward growth. Tweet that out. Now, and coined that term downward mobility, but he didn't come up with it. That, that's that's Jesus' life embodied in a two word phrase downward mobility. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he, what? Emptied Emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the way of Jesus. The one who, according to John, is with God in the beginning, the one who is God in the beginning, empties himself what? My fear, here's my fear. My, my fear is that we'll just nod and go, yeah, 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 Paulson, I get it. The kenosis passage, blah, 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 right? But that we won't really let it hit us. The way of God is a way of emptying, of giving, not grasping, of giving ourselves away rather than being made great. This is the way of Jesus. Remember, a disciple is not superior to his teacher. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus on the path of downward mobility and then enters with him into new life. This is the way of discipleship. This is the way of Jesus. You wanna find your life, Jesus says? Lose it. Give it away. Stop climbing that ladder of successism. Embrace the path of downward mobility. How many of you, that's, that's easy for you? Yeah, that's what I thought, right? Like, it's just, it runs so counter. It's hard for us to even imagine a life that's downwardly mobile that doesn't get completely run over and destroyed. Isn't that, I mean, that's, a, that's what we're, we're, most of us are thinking, Right, Paulson, if I go there, what, where's that going to leave me? If I, if I let go of that idea of bigger, of better, of more, of successism, that idol, that idol of successism, if I don't bow to that idol, then what happens? And, and then maybe you're even thinking, Ryan, what does it even look like to live that kind of, of life? I'm so glad you asked that. Because there's a few things that, that John teaches us, both John, the author of this gospel, and John, the Baptist, who John, the author, is talking about in this text. To, a few things that they teach us that I think just bring this into the forefront of, of real life. So jump back to verse 27, and let me show you the first thing. The first way that decreasing ego actually starts to lead to increasing joy. It says this, after John was asked about his annual report and if he's upset that Jesus is baptizing more people than him, John says, a person cannot, what? Receive even one thing unless it is, what? Given him from heaven. So two words that I want you to focus on, and they're in blue, blue to make it easy on us, okay? One, receive. Receive. John says, the ministry that I had on the east side of the Jordan when people were flocking to me and coming in droves, that was from God. This ministry that I have in Adon of Salim, that, that's also from God. I didn't do anything to deserve it. It wasn't any marketing that made it happen. It wasn't my PR person that did an awesome job. It was just simply something that I opened my hands and received. And then he says next... It was given to me. Like it was a a gift from God. It was grace. It was not something I produced or earned. I simply opened my hands and God himself gave it to me. And then John makes the point, there's nothing in your life that doesn't fit into that category. What's been received because it was given. And I just want, let's just hard pause right there. Everything in our life, every good and perfect gift comes from our Father in heaven who loves us. The things that make your head pop off the pillow in the morning to say, Thank you, God, that I'm alive, are something that you have received because it was given to you. You didn't earn it, it's pure grace. God is sovereign and John holds this deep conviction, everything he has is gift from God. He then goes on to say, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. That word, I am, that phrase, I am not, should be familiar to those who have been with us in the, this gospel of John journey. That's something that John said previously in chapter one as well. But John just has this, this uber high sense of self-awareness. He knows who he is and he knows who he isn't. My question is, do you? Do you know who you are? And maybe even more importantly, do you know who you are not? See, John's teaching us, what does it look like to let go of ego so that we can step into joy? It looks like rejecting competition and embracing your calling. See, because when ego starts to take over, we look to the right, we look to the left, we look to other people who may be doing more, who may be recovering faster, who may be achieving more, who are a better whatever, fill in the blank, the thing that you long to be good at, who are better than you, and we start to go, well, if I had their life, then I'd be happier. If I had that, then I'd be okay. And if I could only get there, well, then, then. And that if, then, then game of competition or comparison with others is the death of our joy. It's like popping a balloon and watching all of the air dissipate. I I, I love this model that John puts forward through his life because I think he teaches us a a few things. First, he teaches us what does it look like to, to reject competition and embrace our calling. I think it means that we start paying attention to the story that God is telling through our life. John was raised in a home. He was a relative of Jesus. Um, God had gifted him from the get-go. He had called him. He had equipped him. He had challenged him. He had sent him. And John pays attention to the contours of his life, the family that he was born into, the gifts he was given, the place and time he was born. Did you know that the scriptures say, That God divinely and sovereignly chose the place that you would be born, the family that you would be born into, and the way that you would be gifted. He created you, wove you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Did you know that the same things that are true of John, for him to receive his calling and step into it without comparison and without competition, are also true of you? I thought somebody would have said amen. So the scriptures will challenge us. Let us run the race that is set out before us. You're not called to run anybody else's race, friend. So comparison starts to be a little bit of a misnomer when we look to the side. When we're running the race that God's called us to run, it's not looking side to side. It's looking up and saying, Jesus, help me run this race as well as I can for my joy and for the glory of your name. And when you start looking side to side how somebody else is doing, how fast they're running, how good they are, whatever, we start to lose the joy that Jesus designed us to live in. I think life is a lot more like running a marathon than it is like running a 200-yard dash. At the end of a 200-yard dash, people ask if you won. At the end of a marathon, nobody asks if you won. They ask, did you finish. Did you finish? And I think that's the way we should approach life. It's not, I'm not comparing myself to anybody else. My goal is to finish as faithfully as I can to the task that God has given me, to the race that was marked out for me. And I want you to finish the race that's marked out before you, not the race that's marked out before someone else. And I think your joy is on the line here, you guys. I think your joy is on the line. Here's the second thing John does he embraces the role that God has for him in the moment rather than projecting where that goal will eventually get us, get him down the road. Like, wouldn't it have been easy for John to go, sure seems like the water is drying up on this whole baptism business, pun intended, okay? like, Like, we started here and now we're here and should I really continue baptizing? And if he were to start projecting out, he might have shrunk back from the calling that God had given him. See, his goal isn't to be amazing or to be great. It's simply to be faithful in the moment. And I wanna encourage you to do the exact same thing. Be faithful in the moment without looking down the road. It's one of the ways that we reject competition and embrace our calling. Are you a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa? What does it look like for you to be faithful to your calling right now, today? Are you an employee or an employer? What does it look like for you to be faithful to your calling right now, today, without projecting? Where is this going to get me someday? Be faithful today. Are you retired? Are you still in the midst of the hustle? Like, where? Or what does it look like for you to be faithful today? Or maybe let me ask it a different way: What have you received? What have you been given? And what does it look like to be faithful to your race, not to somebody else's? See, I love the fact that John is just totally content in saying, I'm I'm just the forerunner. (laughs) Like this, he's just deflecting all of the glory back to Jesus. I think he's living out what the Apostle Paul called followers of Jesus in Rome to live out. He said this. For by the grace that's given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So, So Paul's like, hey, church in Rome, no offense, but don't think you're all that. He's all that. You're not. Think of yourself according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That Greek word that I've highlighted there, it translated to think or to have judgment is a word neo, and it might literally be translated, be sane in the way that you think, and Paul applies that to the way that you think about yourself. John does that. See, he, he's faithful to the story God's telling in his life, He's faithful to the moment in front of him. And he's faithful to live his part of being a forerunner rather than trying to be a glory monger for himself. Let me ask you again, what have you received? What have you been given? And what does it look like to live faithfully into that? John pivots from there and, and he goes into an illustration that would have probably blown up in the hearts of his first readers. It's, it's a bit lost on us because our Wedding tradition is a little bit different, so I'll explain it as we go. John wrote this. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Once again, John the author is reminding us that weddings were a time of great joy. Remember, Jesus turns water into wine as a symbol of welcome and hospitality and joy. And now John uses another illustration and John the Baptist jumps in on it and he goes, yeah, 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 weddings are a time of great joy. This word, the friend of the bridegroom, we could almost read that as um, the best man, the best man. In Hebrew, the term was shoshbin. Would you say that with me? Shoshbin. Yeah, and the shoshbin at any wedding had a really important role. There was an, it was an honored position, and the best man, there's the shoshbin, would, would function as a witness to the wedding, they would help fund the wedding. They would be one who was concerned with the success both of the wedding and of the marriage. But their last and maybe most important job was on the final night of the wedding. Remember, a wedding lasted five to seven days back in first century Israel. On the final night of the wedding, the the bride would go into the house that the groom had prepared for their family to live in. And the bride would wait for her groom to come and it would typically be dark. And there started to develop this tradition of people going in and stealing brides who were waiting for their groom to come. So the best man, the Shoshman, you wanted to, you wanted to choose a yoked Shoshman, okay? Because one of his jobs was to protect your soon-to-be bride. And when he would hear his best friend's voice, he would know he's coming for his bride. And he would get out of the way and he would stand guard so that nobody messed with them on their wedding night. While they consummated their marriage, he would make sure that they were protected and that they were just fine. And John's going, that's me. That's my role. I'm preparing the way. I'm the I'm the show-shman. and the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, the Messiah is the groom and he is coming for his bride, the church. And so what John is saying is, listen, I'm letting go of my ego. I don't need to be the bride or the, the groom. I actually get to step out of the way and I get to do the work to allow the groom to be with his bride. And I find, John says, I find great joy in that. Great joy in that. What does he do? He, he does the same thing we're called to do, to refuse a spotlight and then to enmesh our joy. I chose that word enmesh because I think that's exactly what John is doing. not just receiving joy from Jesus. I think, I think we're familiar with that type of exchange. Like Jesus, we wanna receive your joy. We, we do genuinely. But John is finding his joy in Jesus's joy. That's different than just receiving joy from Jesus. It's Jesus, when, when you're joyful, so am I. Jesus, the things that bring you happiness bring me happiness. My joy is, is enmeshed, Um, in in even maybe like a codependent way with Jesus's. Like Paul was so committed to this that when he wrote to the church at Philippi, listen to what he said. He said, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me In my imprisonment. What then, he says. So so what should I do about that? There's people that are preaching with good motives. There's people that are preaching with bad motives. What should I do? Listen to what he says. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, good motives or bad, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I, what? Rejoice. He's going, Jesus is being lifted up. Sometimes by false motive, others by true. But I don't really care if Jesus is lifted up. Praise be to God. Which brings me to the Super Bowl. <laughs> so if you watch the Super Bowl and Jalen Hurts just duking it out with Mahomes, it was a great game. There were some ads that ran during the Super Bowl by the um, He Gets Us campaign. And I don't know about you, but I was watching the, the game, and um, I, was, I, was, I was sort of stopped in an almost disorienting way. Like, what, what is this ad? That's an interesting... And I'd seen some of their ads before, but this is the first time that I saw it on such a large scale. And man, I was drawn in. It's like, this is really, this is really cool. And then I went to uh, Twitter and Instagram. And it turns out people didn't like these ads. But here's what's ironic. The people that didn't like the ads were Christians. They're going, well, didn't tell the whole story. Didn't tell the whole gospel. Presented some parts of Jesus that we like, but it left out the parts we don't like. Um, Do you know what they could have done with all that money? That they spent, the millions of dollars they spent on these ads. Could you imagine what kind of good they could have done with that? And like my social media feed is just blowing up with, with hate for these ads. And I'm going, I don't know if the Apostle Paul would have responded in the same way. Like Jesus is being lifted up. People are getting curious about Jesus. In my book, that's a really good Thing Like, what about just finding joy in the fact that Christ is proclaimed, right? And here's what it taught me. It's taught me that as much as we want to talk about deflecting joy to Jesus, we actually have a really hard time being the best man or the maid of honor rather than the groom. Like, we, we struggle with that. And, and it shouldn't surprise us, the original temptation of Adam and Eve was you can be like God. It's the same, same temptation people have been struggling with ever since, And so we have a hard time putting Jesus' work ahead of our own. Like, share your faith, and it might cost you some of your reputation. Or or obey your king, even when it's going against some of the desires that are stirring within your soul. Uh, Or trust his plan. Here's, Here's the deal, you guys. I have a really easy time trusting Jesus' plan when it aligns with mine. Anybody with me? Like when he takes my plan and goes, yes, stamp of approval, Jesus, I approve this message. I'm like, I'm so in. So in Jesus and it's your plan, just remember that. But when his plan is different, that's when I struggle, right? Man, I, I love to be the groom. But being the best man and saying it's all about him, that's Different. That's different. See, here's the truth. There's only one bridegroom and it's not you. (laughs) It's not you. Listen to the way that John continues. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who's of the earth belongs to the earth and he speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. See, John, the author, is alluding back to a conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus had where Jesus says that he's from heaven and he's above all. When the power rankings come out in the cosmos, Jesus is number one every single time. So John's posture of decreasing while Jesus increases is the right posture. 32, he bears witness, Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. It's interesting because what, since Jesus is from above and he's seen and heard what goes on above, his testimony of what goes on there is to be trusted because he has direct knowledge. It also means he has a different perspective than we do. Amen? He sees things differently than we do. Uh, the... The, the late great pastor and theologian, uh, Tim Keller, had this great example. Um, he used the example of a, a traffic helicopter that's above the traffic of a city and is able to look down on the traffic that's taking place and able to tell people, hey, you're going to want to avoid the 15. Uh, there's a, which is probably just a good principle in general, um, <laughs> or there's an accident, you're gonna to wanna to avoid this uh, side street or what, you know, whatever. They're able to speak truth about what's going on below because they are from above, right? And Keller says, that's exactly what's going on in this passage. Jesus is speaking truth about life. He's speaking truth about eternity. He's speaking truth about heaven. He's speaking truth about what it looks like to flourish, what it looks like to live in abundance. Jesus is speaking truth About what it looks like down below, but he's speaking from the perspective of up above. And so his testimony is to be trusted. Verse 33, notice that John ends verse 32, yet no one receives his testimony. And he's speaking hyperbolically. We know that because in verse 33, he says, and whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. See, when you trust that Jesus' testimony from above is true and you take it into your life and you begin to live it out, You're able to put your validation, your stamp of approval on the reality that what Jesus said is actually true because you're living it out and you're going, there really was a traffic jam on the 15. There really was, no. we were able to fly and it was great and it was wonderful. What Jesus said is actually true in real life. And so John's challenging us in the midst of all the options that we have as ways to sort of couch our life, give our heart to, whether it's pursuing our own success or ego, he's saying, ditch that, ditch that, resist doubt, and extend your witness. Because here's the thing when we receive Jesus' testimony, John said, we are able to put our stamp of approval on it and say, that's true. That's true. When we receive his witness, we become what? Witnesses. We become witnesses of ourselves. Read through the scriptures and see how many times it talks about Jesus' followers as being witnesses. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the world is looking for authenticated witnesses to Jesus. See, um, if there's a trial going on, there's two types of people you're going to find on the stand. Uh, number one, you're going to find somebody who's a subject matter expert. Come tell us about this subject. Come help us learn. We need more information in order to discern what went on and what really happened. But another person you might find on the stand is a witness. Somebody who's seen. Somebody who's heard. Somebody who is there. And when... The Jesus followers are talked about in the scriptures. They are called witnesses. See here, just lean in for just a moment, you guys. I'm convinced that we are doing a way better job raising subject matter experts than we are teaching people how to be witnesses. And I think that the church of Jesus needs to get back to teaching people how to sit with Jesus, how to hear from Jesus, how to respond in obedience to Jesus. So then we can put our stamp of approval on it. It's authenticated. It's true. It's valid. His words really are spirit. They really are life. He is who he says he is. As Carl Rayner put it, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or he will not exist at all. He uses that term mystic in the same way that John uses the term witness. Someone who tastes and sees that God is good. It's not just hear and study and learn. It's taste and see. Taste and see. But being a witness, you guys, you, I just, you know this, I know this, being a witness is a posture of humility. Because when we witness, we just simply get to talk of what we've seen and what we've heard from Jesus. We just communicate the truth of what that helicopter pilot says about below. His testimony about sexuality, his testimony about power, his testimony about money. When I think of myself more highly than I ought, I become the subject matter expert and I get to decide. But the truth of the matter is I'm called to be a witness to who Jesus is and to what Jesus has said. So John concludes this section and he says, for whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus had the spirit without measure, The father loves his son and has given all things into his hands. That Jesus is exalted above all. So John saying, I must decrease and he must increase is a posture that he will have throughout all eternity. As the great theologian Abraham Kuyper put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out. Mine. It's mine. And I reign supreme over it. And so then John's going to just end this section and he's going to look at us and he goes, so what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that truth? The call to embrace your calling, the, the call to extend your witness, the call to enmesh your joy. Like what are, what are you gonna do with that? Are you gonna continue to fight for your own ego and bow to the idol of successism? Or will you embrace the posture of downward mobility, which is the way of our master and it is the way to joy? What are you gonna do with that? Here's how he asks. He says, whoever believes in the Son." Has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Quick time out. In tracking with John, I just expected him to say, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But that's not what he says. He uses the term oh, uh, believe first, and then he equates belief with obey. It's as though he's saying, if you're not willing to do what Jesus commanded you to do, you can't say you believe in him. Those two things go together. If you believe, then you say back to him, I want to learn how to walk in your way with your heart. He ends by saying, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, The line of demarcation between righteous and unrighteous is unequivocally faith in Jesus. No other options. It's not your good merit, it's not your good deeds, it's not your extreme generosity, it's faith in Jesus. And let's not soft pedal what he says at the end. He says life is on the line. You believe and obey and you get to experience life in life abundant and life full and life eternal. And if you wanna hold on to your own ego and if you wanna play the successism game, if you wanna to bow to the idol of bigger, better or more, what's gonna happen is that you remain under God's wrath and you experience death instead of life. And I read this and I go, but the wrath of God remains on him. Like, does God have wrath? Does God have wrath? Yeah. All throughout the scriptures, we see God is, that's just another word for angry. He's angry. But listen, you wouldn't want a God who didn't have wrath. A God who wasn't angry with sin. A God who didn't grieve over the brokenness of our world. Is that a God worth following? Is that a God worth bowing to? I just admit to you that it is not. See, God gets so angry at sin that he sends his own son to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might not perish, but that we might have eternal life. And we have access to God through faith in his son, not through our own success so we can let go of our ego. This isn't about how high we climb, how much we do, how good we are. This is about the grace and kindness of our God who comes to us, who meets us at our low, who walks with us, who loves us, who cares for us, and who calls us his own. Friends, the biting irony of the whole Jesus story is that the one person who could have been arrogant, the one person who could have clung to his ego, the one person who could have been self-righteous wasn't. He emptied himself. That's the Jesus way. And so maybe this morning we just need to all cry out. I ain't nothing but a hound dog. I'm broken. I'm in need. I don't have it in myself. And maybe we need to raise our voice and say, help. I need somebody but not just anybody. (laughs) I need Jesus. So do you. When you go to Israel and you get the chance, oh, my bad, that's on me. And see, here's the deal. Trust in Jesus or trust in self leads to death, but trust in Jesus leads us to life. That's what John's saying. When you go to Israel and you go to the church of nativity, what you'll find is that the door was made for people who are toddlers. (laughs) It's really small. And here's what you've got to do in order to get in it. You've got to get down. You've got to get low in order to get in. And once you get in, it expands and you can lift up your eyes and be just absolutely captured and captivated. And I think that's the same path for every Jesus follower. We get low, (laughs) help, I need somebody, I need a savior. We get low. And as we get low, we meet our Messiah and he raises our eyes and he says back to us, I love you and I'm for you. That's our God. And his invitation is, will you follow me and become my disciple?"